Unsettling Knowledge. This week in our podcast, we examine teaching the history of racism in the week of George Floyd's murder. Right, so late May, early June, two events or things coincided. First, very well known, there were the deaths of first Arpaud Arbery. He was murdered in February, but his uh, suspected killers were apprehended on May the 7th. And then later in May, on the 25th, uh, there was the death of George Floyd, murdered by a police officer who ignored his repeated cries of, I can't breathe. The second thing is, well, not very well known, it's what we were doing at that time. Yeah, Matthijs, and we were nearing the end of a course entitled Racism in the Western World. Indeed, and it's not even unusual that uh, such things such murders happen in the outside world during such a course. For the um, almost four years of teaching this subject, there's always been a recent killing or something else that underlined how serious of a problem this is today. And it's always shocking. Yeah. So there we were in the last week of the course, a final week for exam review and last-minute reading. George Floyd's final week and last minute. And in the days after he was murdered, we had to step into the classroom charged with the duty and the honor of teaching a generation of Utrecht University students about race and racism in the Western world. Right, so this episode explores what happens in the classroom in a moment like that, and the broader implications that such moments show, namely that our teaching is unbearably never just about the past. Part 1. The Classroom So, the first thing I would like to know from you, Rachel, is these are heavy themes. How do you start talking about this in class because this is what always puzzles me and which I find one of the most challenging things in class you can't just sort of dump these things in class like that so how how do you make it accessible to students or how do you start such a conversation from very early on in my teaching uh, one of the things I often do to begin a seminar not just in the racism course but in for example entry to the philosophy of history course I'll do a short history in the news section. So I invite and challenge my students to see history in the current events. And that could be anything from, you know, discovering King Richard III's remains in a car park in Leeds or wherever it was, to the use of World War II metaphors when people were speaking about Brexit. So that sets up, I think, an environment in the classroom where we're used to interrogating the news, but from a very historical point of view. But when I saw the news about Ahmad Arbery, my heart sunk. And first of all, because a person had died. And I felt for his family and for his life cut short by murderous vigilantes. But my heart also sunk because having set that precedent of paying attention to the influence of history in the present, I knew I had to discuss it. And if I didn't, the students would. They w- of course, they, I mean, it links up with the very thing we're, we're teaching, right? It's, if we look at the course materials of our course, I mean, he was shot by a father... And the son and, and someone else, I think there were three, right? Yeah. While he was jogging in a white neighborhood. And then those three, they grabbed their shotguns and, and hunted him down. And they were connected to the justice systems. I, th- I think there were former police officers. So they were connected to that system, protected by it. I mean, notice the gap between the murder of, of Arbery and, and the moment they got arrested. That's a couple of months. And that looks like the way black people were lynched back in the 20s. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. and as Accused of, of crimes. Accused of crimes. They didn't commit. Yep. In Ahmad's case, it was being in a neighborhood where there was this suspicion that he was in a house uh, casing the joint. 
But as the fearless journalist and statistician, amazing woman, black woman who forged a career for herself in journalism in the 1920s and 30s, Ida B. Wells showed most of the charges, the suspicions that led to black men being lynched were fabricated. And their real crime was being confident, being where white folk felt that they shouldn't be, earning money and enjoying success in the world. For example, uh, owning a small business. And so these historical linkages between systems that protect those who target black lives and the very real suffering caused when black lives are ended before their time, this linkage has historical dimensions. The students raised it to me. They emailed me. They said, can we discuss this in class? I set aside time for it. Uh, specifically in the way I set up the class structure. And then I navigated that discussion on Microsoft Teams. And so I was staring into the screen, kind of trying to be authentic and immediate and share both my uh, historical analytic side, but also the very real emotion I was feeling. And it was exhausting. It is, as it usually is. And it's sad that we even, that it is usual for a course, that there's always an arbory or someone else murdered and, and... that's something you have to discuss in class. And I wonder then, because then, then George Floyd came. And if I'm honest, at first, I did not realize that this would set off uh, fiercer protests than, uh, than we've seen in a long while. So, of course, in private capacity, like without thinking of the class, I saw the footage and it was shocking and I was, I was perplexed. Me and my class, I did not discuss it at length. We, um, I can compare to you in any case. So we acknowledged it and, and we uh, we felt and we, we shared a sense of, of indignation. But it's only in hindsight that I feel we should have discussed it more. And this also relates to the question, when when did you realize that this is this is something you can't ignore, that the skill is unprecedented? So how, how did you go about discussing his case, his murder in class? Yeah, so I mean, in addition to some of the systemic factors I mentioned before and that visceral nature of the video, I did begin to see comments coming in to my email and the sheer disgust at seeing that video was met by the same experience with the Arbery case of wow this is going to come up and so actually in that case uh, even more so than before I outlined to the students you know we are going to cover the material we will do the exam preparation and I will hold space at the end of class to honor your request to talk about this This is deeply relevant to our topic. And we also use the chat function for students who weren't prepared to speak openly in class, but many of them pushed further than I did on that conversation. So I held the space in the chat, but also in the classroom as a decolonial classroom practice, but also because of this theme that we keep coming back to, how could this happen again? Of course it happened again. What I didn't expect was for the students to so very quickly turn a critical eye on their own national settings. So it wasn't just a moment of, you know, oh, look how terrible America is, aren't they so racist, which often comes up. But they really were turning to the Netherlands, to England, to South Africa, Zimbabwe, Australia and France. Connecting those places and cases. And that's an interesting thing indeed. And it's sort of, if you name those different places, it's always also one of the uh, more challenges we have in in designing this course, right? We have have these these various weeks and what we start by tracing racism's historical genealogy. So it's about early modern slavery, about colonialism, 
the Middle Ages even, we're both absolute fans of Geraldine. Hank's work on racism in the Middle Ages. Uh, Why the Middle Ages? Everyone is always asking that question. If you bring this up, didn't racism start with transatlantic slavery in early modern times? uh, The 1619 project is called like that for a reason. That's when the first enslaved people arrived in what's now the US. Well, it's a sort of a historical chicken and egg problem. What came first? If there was no racism before that, why is it that... African people were brought over the Atlantic Ocean and not Europeans. Why is there why is the racialized system from the beginning? And that's where Hank stops in. She shows how there is there is racialized imagery during the Middle Ages already. She looks at various things, the way white and black skins are portrayed in art, but also the ways in which black characters feature in King Arthur legends. And what emerges from her work is that there is already an idea of a fundamental difference in the Middle Ages, right? It's it's not sort of Uh, set in stone the way racism later operates but you can see that this is the imagery that's used to start exploiting black people and enslaving them around 1500 it ties into the entire course it's uh, showing how racism is not necessarily about race as a pseudo-scientific idea but the idea of a fundamental difference between people that is present already in in the Middle Ages. Yeah, and using these differences to serve as the basis for differential legal systems, differential treatment, differential spatial Because crucially, uh, those differences are seen as fundamental, not differences you can overcome, but differences that are natural, you're born with it. Yes, and cannot be overcome. So they they live in different areas or they can never be sort of brought into our community. And that's interesting. You can say, okay, that's that's a a new take on the Middle Ages, but it's also a new take on today because it's a different idea about how racism and race are linked, right? Um, I think Tanasi Coates starts uh, one of his books with saying race is the child of racism, not the father, and that sort of captures it. In any case, this was a a sideline. We were talking about the week outline because we always worry, do the things add up, right? We have all these different weeks because after this prehistory of of racism, there is the US and France and the UK and... And then finally, the Netherlands. And it it comes last. Some some students actually comment on that. They say, uh, why do you do do the Netherlands last? That's odd. Yeah, and, and, you know, they say as if you're sort of externalizing racism as something that happens elsewhere, that happens everywhere (laughs) except in, in... this particular country, the Netherlands. And and that, again, as I said, was one of the things with the Black Lives Matter, that people were so very quick, students were so very quick to relate it to the Netherlands. But this externalization of the practices, the bad practices that other people do, oh, they're all racist in America, you know, but not here, is one of the ways in which racist ideology operates like that. For example, all those other colonizers exploit their people. Exactly. So historically, this is part of racism. It's the, it, 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 it was the Belgians that were cruel, not us enlightened Britons, that, that idea. I felt, and you too, I, I imagine, that students had a point here. Indeed, should the Netherlands not come earlier? And of course, there's also other reasons for having the Netherlands last, like reasons, planning reasons, availability of guest speakers, etc. Let's not hide behind that. But then I was thinking about it and I thought there's also an advantage perhaps in first discussing racism as something that happens elsewhere, further away, and then you familiarize yourself with how it's how it works, how it operates with an open mind, and then to find out how it looks and then you are in a better position 
to take it more seriously in the country where we teach, in the Netherlands. And this is arguably a white perspective, because I don't think a black person needs to learn about racism in the US to know and to see it here. Yeah, and well, I'm not even sure if it's just a white perspective. I have a very different experience growing up in New Zealand, where colonization enters very early into the curriculum, and we're very conscious of the history of settlement and colonization Mm -hmm. from a very early age in the school curriculum. So my experience with that has been different, but here in the Netherlands, that is not the case. Absolutely not. And well, it was very typical. For instance, we discussed Gloria Wecker's work in that week on the Netherlands. Dutch scholar Gloria Wecker, who has written a book called White Innocence, in which she charges the Netherlands and many of its inhabitants with pretending, feigning ignorance of the racism that exists here. Right. It's an active form of not knowing or not wanting to know to retain that innocence in her book's title. We discussed her work and the reactions were very typical and they were like the reactions she got in society, which is, okay, it's a serious problem, racism, so she's probably right somewhere, but also feelings that it was anecdotal or that she was exaggerating a little bit here and there. So some students had the skepticism that she met before. And of course, there is some irony in that because that reaction, that way of sort of feigning ignorance or wondering whether it's really that bad is the very thing she describes. And then the interesting thing is that some students had that reaction, but then they, they realized it. They saw that they were doing what she was describing and so backtracked. Saying, yeah, so you were saying that having had this kind of theoretical introduction to racism and then seeing it at work in other countries when they encountered Wecker's work and and said no no but she's exaggerating they saw themselves playing the same kind of responses that they had learned to distinguish as happening in America or or seen as working in the literature that's my theory I mean it's it's one we still have to test with some students but that's what I like to think because they, they had a more open mind I mean there's also some sort of selection in who who opts to uh, to enroll in our course yeah because they they had some of the skepticism but they also had an open mind to sort of let themselves be convinced by Gloria Wecker and that's something you could not see that much in the reactions she got in society there's a lot of people reacting to her but they you you can see from the start on they they do not want to be convinced. They're hostile. Yeah, although maybe the work of her and one of her fellow scholars, Philomena Essed, and this growing movement in the Netherlands to engage with the past is beginning to bear fruit. As I said, in this moment, in our classroom, my students, it seemed this wasn't a new thing to them to begin to turn a critical eye on the Netherlands, but it was very quick this shift from the USA to the Netherlands. What also surprised me was the number of students who turned that critical eye on their high school curriculum as well. And they said, Black Lives Matter, and we have learned so much in this course. And why didn't we know about it from school? This is a function of the very racism that the protests are about and so yes they really brought that uh, move from the American situation to the global Black Lives Matter movement into their own learning and teaching very fast. They did although it's interesting you say it's a sign of changing times. I do think so. And I like to think the same at the same time I was thinking back of so there's this idea that indeed when uh, Philomena Asset published her, her famous book on everyday racism in the Netherlands so that was during the 80s that she met hostility that's not here anymore and that is now different as you described but then at the same time I was I was looking back at those reactions on Asset because I expected some form of in-your-face hostility and it wasn't it was actually that sort of that more subtle 
everyday racist reaction she got in the typical reaction would be she wrote a book about racism and that's a very serious problem indeed but just like my some of my students said but isn't she exaggerating a little bit or is it that bad so from that position yeah we've moved a little but also not that far perhaps maybe I mean, my students were challenging me in the the chat function that we Mm -hmm. talked about. Well, not challenging me, but certainly very overt about, like, I'm going to this protest, here's that petition. Because there was a law coming up in the Netherlands at the time about um, a lack of accountability for the police. So they were very much pointing to things. I would say they are pushing the boundaries um, at the same time, you know, very recently. Rapper Akwasi was held to a very high legal standard for some comments he made. And so you might say that while the students are in one place, the ones who come into our classroom, society is still lagging behind. So perhaps I share some of your cynicism too. Let's take that question to our students. Part two, student experiences. So I want to welcome Stuart Duncan, one of the wonderful students in our class who comes from Zimbabwe and Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, Stuart. And as we prepared to discuss this, I asked what your memories of that particular week in class were and, and what that particular moment in class felt like to you as a student. Yeah, at that moment, it was just really surreal. I just remember the sense of looking at what was happening in America and as it was spreading. Just, I think a lot of us really felt that this time was different and that was appearing on all of our social media pages. I remember having these conversations with friends and actually just really feeling like I had a voice behind what was happening. So, yeah, surreal in a word is what I would posit there. Yeah, and I can tell you were moved by it. One of the things that moved me was how much students in class responded to what we were learning. And so many of them exclaimed, not just in that moment, but throughout the course, that learning about the history of racism and race opened their eyes to topics and historical patterns of thinking that had not been covered in their high school curricula. We spoke with Neve Manglani, one of the students in this class, who shared with us how she felt about the lack of attention given to the history of racism in her schooling and the importance that, in her opinion, it should be given. I think for me, it really emphasized the flaws in the UK curriculum. I really felt like all of what I learned is something that I should have been taught at school and that everyone should really have just a basic knowledge of the history of race and racism. I think it's so important that people know this because I don't see how anything's going to change if they don't. Especially in the UK, Britain really is not tackling its colonial past. And it's really sad because there was a petition going around at this time calling for institutional racism, European colonization and stuff like that to be compulsory for all UK students to learn in school. And I got a huge number of signatures and the government's response was a curriculum is comprehensive enough. I don't really know how things are going to change if this kind of thing isn't taught in schools. So the Dutch have just begun to explore this, but as of this moment, just this week, President Trump announced he wants to stimulate patriotic education in the United States. And I know this is a response to the 1619 project that uncovers the history of slavery. But education is often patriotic, and that Black Lives Matter moment in our classroom revealed some gaps in the curricula. And to me, that's where we teach our students as critical thinkers to examine those gaps. And I thought that was a really key intersection between the classroom and real life and student experiences. And so I, in that moment, thought that was a great opening 
of relevance between the classroom and the quote-unquote real world. Indeed, and what surprised me is that many students... Well, for example, we have this week on the UK, right? Yeah. And we discussed the Windrush scandal. That was perhaps the week where, where most reactions came. Many students said they were surprised to, or to hear of the existence of the Windrush scandal to begin with. That was not covered in their curriculum. Yeah, and just to clarify, the Windrush scandal is the moment in British immigration when the boat named the Windrush mm -hmm. first brought a whole lot of laborers from the Caribbean into England at the request of the British government. And they were invited in, they were asked to labor for the British government, and it later turned out that through a series of legal procedures, governmental rulings, these people's legality and passport and right to stay in England and right to health care yeah, they, they lose Away. Citizenship, they yeah, lost exactly. their citizenship. And, and the scandal is perhaps that last bit, but it's also the, the very beginning, yeah. right? That it starts with that invitation in a racist political climate and it, it shows the structural element of what's happening there. And well, interestingly, that's sort of a connection students seem to make, even though this seems sort of only, well, not really related to, to Black Lives Matter or, or George Floyd's death at that moment. Many students also from the UK seem to be surprised to learn these things. Me, coming from the Netherlands, it's only relatively recent that I learned of these things, thanks to, to Noel, our uh, wonderful colleague who lectured on that that week. I had not thought that students from the UK had not heard or hadn't heard that much from this. And that raises that question about what is missing in our high school curricula and this constant reaction from several students. I wish I'd known about this. One of my French students, oh, we never were taught about how the French Revolution, which brought about a transformation in human rights, was actually pretty selective uh, about who got to exercise those rights. And slavery is reintroduced by Napoleon. And she said there, that there are lessons her on curriculum. the French Revolution where Haiti is absent Com completely. Yeah. Lessons on the French Revolution where Haiti is excised. And so, Stuart, I just wanted you to reflect on this. Were there things missing in your high school curricula? What did the course bring that was maybe new? Living in Zimbabwe and studying there is a bit different, but I definitely did study the Cambridge system eventually, so we learn a lot about English and European history. But, of course, there's these big gaps with the colonial history. What I found interesting was when we were discussing the Windrush, and there were transcripts from some of the politicians that were speaking, really, like just like terms like Pekinen or Pekinini. Coming from Zimbabwe, Pekinen is a small black child, but it's never been like associated, in my mind, as a racist slur. And then hearing it used in that context, and I was like, oh, my goodness. All this time, this kind of everyday language is actually deeply rooted in this colonial past, which sneaks into the everyday. And that sounds like the Windrush scandal itself is not taught no. in schools there. No. More in Zimbabwe, it's about the independence and moving from British rule to Zimbabwe and like freedom. So they don't really touch too much on the British elements. It's more just like we fought against colonialism and won. It's very simplified. <laughs> so you actually, growing up in Zimbabwe, had a, a different kind of take on colonialism, and then that changed when you got to We Cambridge. get back to the Windrush. Can you tell us, it's hard to recollect these things sometimes. Do you know what you knew about it before coming in our class? Nothing. Nothing. A little bit. I knew about immigration from the Caribbeans, but not that specific event and how it forced to prove their their citizenship when their own papers were destroyed by the Home Office. I think that stuck with a lot of students, actually, just the injustice there. I guess it stuck partly because of the relevance 
of the events. As we were teaching, I mean, this was in the final week of class, and I know I always struggle as a lecturer with how much I should focus on the content, how much I should just keep teaching what you quote-unquote need to know <laughs> to pass the exam. And I wondered what that looks like from a, a student's point of view, that balance between sticking with the course content, as it were, and then opening space in the classroom for discussing these things. How does that feel to you? Do you have advice for us as teachers? <laughs> no, well, I definitely felt that um, that conflict of like how much do we teach the course content and then the academic relevance and then also what was happening outside essentially. But when I was preparing, I came across it was actually in relation to the toppling of the statue uh, Colston in Bristol. Bernadine Evaristo, so she's a British author, Brooker Prize winner, she's written a book called uh, Girl, Woman and Other, and she makes the statement against that, like, we can't change history, and she says, actually, this is ridiculous, because we revise our history constantly. History is a construction. A lot of the time it's constructed by white European men, and we actually just need to reinterpret and include more voices. And I think that was what ended up happening with this real-world situation happening outside. Those voices were brought in chorus with what we were learning. So that made it so much more relevant and worthwhile. I love that idea, that it's in chorus. Did, did, you, did you get to discuss the text of that week, or was that last thing on the pile? We did discuss it, but we had an open final half hour or 15 minutes just focused on actually what was happening with the Black Lives Matter protests and what was happening in America. Unfortunately for me, because I was very involved, but my internet kept on breaking. It was Teaching all in times digit- of COVID. Yeah, that was one of the hard things. We were in COVID and, and in this very bizarre distanced situation where some people's internet was dropping and we were having this quite intense conversation at times. People in at least three or four different time zones, I think, in the same class. Absolutely. Yeah, one student getting up at six o'clock in the morning in Canada, another student's coming in from Zimbabwe, where she had, I think, one hour a day of reliable internet. And some Australia. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, and we're lucky if we're if we're talking about sort of real life events versus literature. I mean, that dichotomy doesn't always hold, right? We have, we have literature like David Olusogas, who is actually very much attuned to. I mean, of course, he can't write about current events, but his whole book is geared towards speaking to what's happening today. Yeah, this is the British historian David Olusoga, and he was I think one of the prescribed readings for the Windrush week, and at the very same moment as we were reading his text on, I think it's Black and British, he was also under enormous fire and in the news constantly and responding to people about the, the Colston statue in Bristol. Thinking of this chorus of voices and that echoing of what you were seeing in the news being very applicable to the classroom, I think that felt very real to me as well. He, he is unstoppable. I mean, you follow him on Twitter, right? Oh, yes. He responds to everything. I mean, he goes at length to explain to everyone how toppling a statue is not erasing history, as you often hear. But part of, um, Stuart, what you just said when you quoted uh, Bernardine Evaristo, like part of the way we imagine history, the way we memorize it, and the changes in that. So he does a very good job there. Yeah, And just provide further context with the statues. I know that with that particular statue, they'd wanted to to change the context, to provide a, an additional plaque, but that was never really brought to the fore until they actually took it into their own hands. And It's been the process of or decades, right? That yes. There's talk about changing something, adding a plaque, which is indeed just often the outcome after 
30 years of debate and discussion. Yeah, but even then, nothing had happened. So it really speaks to the continuing dismissal of the past and not really dealing with it. What I loved in the, the moment in the classroom was just as Stuart has been discussing the statue now and adding to our knowledge of what happened, the students were just layering on knowledge. And although not being in the classroom with them was awful, the chat function on Teams, it was this very interesting multimedia experience where we would be speaking, but also students would be layering on websites and book references and knowledge in the chat that was so impressive to me that it sort of added to this political of voices. One student who took our course last year, Ruben Fogel, was kind enough to offer some of his reflections on studying racism during the pandemic. Ruben told us that aspects of the pandemic, such as the fact that the Black American community had suffered disproportionately when compared to the general population, had really driven home for him the way that issues of racism have impacts across society. Now, we couldn't use Ruben's recording because the sound quality didn't quite match, but if you want to hear him, tune in to our bonus extras. His comments were great because it was so nice to see that although teaching was really hard and still is during the pandemic, it has inspired both us and our students to think more deeply about our topics of study and their presence and impact in the real world. So in that way, I guess we have one thing to thank Corona for. Indeed. So the, the real world enters the classroom, given the fact that these are not topics you can remain neutral about. Stuart, was Rachel neutral in class? <laughs> oh, put me on the spot. <laughs> I mean, you can only be neutral insofar as actually what you see happening. And this was like with the George Floyd video being recorded, I think, made it so much more in your face this time around. And there wasn't much interpretation as to what actually happened there. But with the other people in the chat function, as mentioned, there was a lot of varying views, but all complementary to each other. And there was definitely that space to actually bring in your own opinions, own uh, personal reflections. And doing this class and this course, there was a lot of moments where I actually questioned a lot of what was being taught, particularly being a white person in Zimbabwe. There is a lot of kind of aggression towards you because of the colonial past, and rightly so. But sometimes it's kind of, when we were discussing these things, it was a lot of, like, I could see myself in actually what we were discussing about, like, microaggressions in classrooms and these sort of things. And the fact that any form of prejudice can actually just really tear down the individual and actually lead to these atrocious events. You just see can, the, can you recollect those differences? Do you know what, what was it about? Or Specifically with Zimbabwe, there wasn't too much, but I know that a lot of mentions of uh, Maoris and uh, the Aboriginal peoples in Australia came into a lot of the discussion as well sometimes, and you just see these overlapping issues. There's a lot of similarity even though the contexts are different, but there's a lot of shared oppression. I love what Stuart said. You can only be as neutral as, as you, you can be. And I am in a particularly interesting position sometimes uh, because like David Olusoga, although much less successfully, I tweet and I have a, a quite a public presence. I'm quite open about the fact that, for example, in that week I was going on Black Lives Matter protests. And that means that when I set up classroom discussion, I feel like I take even quite a few pains to say, I know that not everybody agrees. For me to position myself is honesty and integrity, and it's actually more objective than pretending I don't have a position in this debate. But that also then means that I take a lot of 
care to try and make students feel comfortable in my classroom, to try and acknowledge that they don't all come from the same political background that I do or have the same impetus. And that in the classroom, whether it's virtual or real, we try and keep it like evidence-based and experiential is part of evidence, but also that we have respect for what each other is saying. So that sounds very sort of airy-fairy, but that's one of the practices that I try and go into the classes at the beginning and set up. That in some ways gives me more ability to then be open about how I'm feeling. It's very hard. I will say going into that classroom, virtual otherwise, and, and just very distressed about George Floyd's murder and being open about that with the students, like letting them see how upset I actually was. To me, that's terribly difficult because there's a protection in putting your academic neutral face on, right? And and sometimes students need that protection, but, but I'm not neutral. And so then the trick is to, or the good practice is to be clear about where I am and who I am, but open space for them to do that as well. And just practically, uh, I did that partly by trying to do the readings first. So people who are anxious about the readings and covering the exam content, we did that. And then I was pretty clear about like, so I'm going to really try and hold half an hour at the end. I think it ended up being 20 minutes. <laughs> but sometimes... That's a risk, right? I mean, often when you when you have an outline for the for the seminar, it exceeds the time available. And the last 20 minutes are very often axed. But looking at Stuart here now, you you did manage to to discuss. Yes, definitely. And I remember actually emailing Rachel one evening, trying to link up what was happening. And I think you were probably inundated with a lot of these sorts of messages, trying to link what we've learned so far, and if we could please discuss it. But for me, it was about when George Fredrickson highlights his three overtly racist regimes, and there's Nazi Germany, apartheid South Africa, and then the American South. I mean, it was a bit simplistic, but I really felt that there was something behind it that at least in Nazi Germany and with the apartheid they've kind of reconciled with their past they've taken it head on and come to terms with it it's imperfect but they've acknowledged it and then I asked my American friends and said have you had similar processes in America and a lot of the times they say no not really or that actually teachers in the US can actually omit certain sections of history just to make it more patriotic. That's an all other week in the course but it's astonishing what's uh, happening in terms of how history is thought, how history, how the memory of it is in, in the U.S. South with the Confederacy. We saw this video clip, right? What it was about was the fact that there's U.S. military bases named for uh, Confederacy generals. That there are, I remember another piece having uh, read it last year, uh, that there is dining halls in the U.S. where there is a sort of a civil war theme and where half of the, the audience is cheering uh, happily for the North and the other half is cheering happily for the South, which is a curious way to remember uh, a war that was about slavery. So indeed, Stuart, sort of coming back to you, that's, that's very different from the way apartheid or the Nazi regime is dealt with. Indeed, there is some reconciliation there, which well, is only beginning or... Well, is it beginning, actually? That's another question. Perhaps America is heading for the kind of reckoning that South Africa and Germany and perhaps in some ways Zimbabwe and Kenya... Uh, have had to go through. Yeah, only time can tell there. There's a skeptical historian in me that thinks, okay, yes, makes sense. And at the same time, there's graphic evidence of terrible murders on black Americans all the time. So that in itself is not new. So um, maybe the only thing that's different from before is that it's indeed during COVID times 
Although that in itself doesn't sound like like it exposes some extra inequalities. But does it explain everything? So I'm 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 wondering, like maybe a few years from now, would we see this differently or do we then see what was different this time? The COVID crisis, I think, was a real factor in this because there's a well-researched set of statistics on the disparities between the disease's impact on white populations and non-white populations in and beyond the United States. So I think the disparity in death rates and in the financial impact of COVID brought to the surface anger about systemic inequalities in the states. And George Floyd's murder seemed to capture both the intimately human but brutally systemic systems of racist oppression there. And then perhaps Trump also has to do something with it, no? Yes. Being like this is the time of the Trump presidency. Yeah, and I mean, I also think it's Barack Obama. So you have eight years of this black man in the White House breaking through the hold of racism in the States. The election of Trump shows that, in fact, no, that system of racism, that the resentments uh, that underlie things hasn't been broken at all. And exposing some of the deep, deep, deep racialized resentments in the United States, some things that really do go back to these historic routes and roots, not just slavery, but settlement, the, the genocide of Native Americans. George Floyd's murder, yes, we've seen murders on TV before. I'm not sure we've seen another police officer sit there and try and keep back people who wanted to intervene while another police officer who didn't even care had his knee on knee, somebody's yeah. neck as, as that person breathed their last. And George Floyd was so clearly not resisting and the police were so callous in their disregard for his safety, his life and his well-being. There was this moment where I, I literally wanted to jump through the screen and stop it. You know, and I think that visceral effect on top of these longer term structural components, all compounded by COVID and the last two presidencies, was one of these Arab Spring, French Revolution kind of moments. Definitely, especially with social media. That's where I came across the video initially, and I didn't expect it to be so graphic, as you say. And there was no warning at that stage as to what was going to happen. It was very fresh it had literally just happened and it was already being broadcast around the world and no sooner did that happened then everyone kind of started raising their voices and saying actually enough is enough and we need to discuss this and I think that's what I found with being under lockdown in my own little room it was a way to actually bring my own experiences to other people and learn a lot more with these different varying views especially for me there was at one stage when everyone was posting black squares and then that was a moment where I was really like wow this is really kind of just made me speechless as to just scrolling and just constantly. So also actually a very practical thing people were at home on social media stuck in their rooms. And it hit everyone harder in that situation. I I think so. Uh, And I mean we were also all looking at the news constantly seeing what was happening and there was kind of prime opportunity for it to actually develop into what it became just this global solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Yeah and also maybe global solidarity with a feeling of connection, a feeling of connected humanity. When we're surrounded by awful disease-ridden death and then suddenly you see this death that could have been prevented or that was kind of really gratuitous even more than one uh, created by disease. Uh, So perhaps that was part of it as well. You also highlighted the fact Trump is president and that's probably important too. I mean, there's all the whole sort of debate on, or people pointing out, okay, racism has been at the heart of the American project from the start. 
he is the first president who who does it so overtly in modern times, right? Who who sort of takes the pretense away that America is not racist. I've heard it described as the Overton window, the window of things that it is possible or normal to say in mm-hmm. society, and, and Trump has shifted that. And so we're once again back at America, and this is also something that I thought was such an amazing moment in my classroom, is this very swift turn when students looked at America and then said, what's happening in my own country? So this also for me was one of these very interesting things as a historian and as a person to watch uh, and experience going to Amsterdam for the Black Lives Matter protests and seeing thousands of Dutch people. And they weren't just protesting. They weren't just using the American situation as a way to kind of feel a little bit good about the Netherlands, which people sometimes do. But they were also saying, now let's turn a critical eye on our own processes. And I'm not sure why that happened. I guess that's my historical puzzle. It is. Maybe while we're looking at Stuart right away. You you said some (laughs) things on that actually before. How memories from Zimbabwe and the things we uh, discussed in class on the UK and in the US seem to speak to each other, right? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, there was these overlaps. And also it really speaks to a lot of actual just like systemic injustice that occurs around the world. I know after the Black Lives Matter protests, a similar hashtag started trending in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe Lives Matter. And that was more directed at actually just the government misspending COVID funds and applying it to these systemic injustices that are occurring and using that that voice that everyone can relate to and then applying it and then broadcasting it to the world. This is actually bringing it closer to home again. But this time it was when I was writing the midterm paper. I chose uh, the story of Sarah Bartman and how she is used as a... She's taken through the European case to represent like the lowest form of humanity and and this racial structure. And then she's, after her death in 1816, a plaster cast is made of her body and her skeleton are displayed in the Museum of Man in Paris, I think. Came across the image of her display, and at first I was like, oh, there's a display of Sarah Bartman. Let's discuss what is actually happening here, this racialization of her, this hypersexualization of her. And it really just made me realize how desensitized I am to some of these issues, having like grown up in this sort of European system. Um, I love that story. Sarah Batman was, of course, familiarly known as the hot and hot Venus. And yes, she was uh, toured around, put on exhibit. Um, She was a a South African woman, what we now call South Africa. And then after her death, she was put on display in museums as part of a way of displaying classifications of humans that goes along with the kind of enlightenment ways of thinking, classifying, breaking the world into categories and groups, which resulted in some of the ways people have historically thought about race and used racial categories to justify other systems, uh, among which are very, very oppressive systems, such as enslavement. So I loved that assignment, but I think it also speaks to this one achingly unknowable but human person at the heart of these other structures of oppression and specularity, like making other people a spectacle for our vision to fit in with our view of the world. I was just going to mention uh, Philomena Essay's notion of everyday racism. It kind of just starts and can be found in the routine our everyday thoughts and then as she puts it it's systematic recurrent and familiar practices that 
subtly reinforced these stereotypes. And for me, that image of Sarah Bartman's museum display spoke volumes to that notion. This is also where it starts. What you said about being uh, desensitized, right? That's maybe part of the, what, what the set says. Part of we're learned to respond in such a manner to such images. Exactly. And, and unlearning that desensitization is, is what we're doing or we're trying to do. Yeah, it's especially through this course, just coming to terms with like your own prejudice that you're not even really aware is a prejudice until you actually are confronted with an alternative voice that's coming from a really sincere position. At the start of most of our classes, or a few of our classes, uh, Rachel would say, it's a beautiful day to learn about racism, or what a wonderful day it is to learn about racism. And that really just speaks to that everyday notion that we have to keep on working at it. Yeah, just for the record, some of these days were stunningly glorious, beautiful, sunny days. And I would turn from my garden where I was growing things. And we would need yet again to talk about the death of another black or brown person yet again in a process that, you know, we're supposed to teach history and it's never just history. So it's always a wonderful day to learn about racism is what I would start with. And then also, yeah, just behind that, the poignance of, of the actual reality behind what was actually happening. So behind this cherry statement was a stark reality of these processes that were happening around us. Stuart, thanks Thank you. for joining us here. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. And thanks especially to our student participants, Stuart Duncan, Neve Manglani, Ruben Fogel, and Jonas Schiffer, all students in our course who took time well after the course was over to record their impressions and responses. If you want to hear more of them and their reactions to how this whole process worked for them during the class, listen to our bonus audio track. But for now, goodbye and until next time, because we have fresh episodes coming soon. One will be a book conversation on Frank Garrett's new edited collection, Visions of African Unity, that includes a huge range of voices thinking about how Pan-African visions of unity, of combining, unfolded in the context of the Cold War and beyond. We've got another episode coming on the TV series Bridgerton. What are its successes and failures? And more on teaching and decolonization, trying to unsettle knowledge and show how traces of empire have affected European society. Take care and catch you again soon.